same, isn't it? Well, not all dessert leaves you feeling good after, by the way, <laughs> based on personal experience. I did have a half a Mars bar on the way in to cheer my spirits. So, um, John chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man 
more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but my Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Well, let us ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father, please now bless the words to us. We have read that there are those who believe, but there are also those who do not. They blind their eyes, they harden their hearts, and uh, in the mystery of all things, we see that you are not inactive in that, but sometimes your word does, uh, as it were, blind. We pray for mercy here, that you would be merciful to us, that you would not judge us, and that even for Christians who believe, they would believe with a stronger and greater faith in all that you have said. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I suspect some of you might uh, know the feeling of going to grad. I uh, had uh, a period in my life where my dad had a, a BMW and if you could uh, go to graduation or if you could go on a date with a BMW, you were, you were ahead of the game. Now, I did hear a recent study that uh, sociopaths are more likely to choose a BMW than any other car. And uh, I wish I hadn't said that because our poor deacon, Baram Dipor, uh, was uh, uh, driving a BMW to church this morning and he says, Mark, it's the only one in the parking lot. Uh, listen, Baram, I don't do the studies. <laughs> I just cite them. Now, uh, you know, imagine, you know, you've got a nice car, you're about to go and uh, pick up your grad date for the nice occasion that graduation is, and the BMW, surprise, surprise, is not working. Um, and so your older sister's beater vehicle, which I had incorrectly said she could get for 500 but I'm reliably informed beater vehicles are now several thousand dollars in today's market. Um, you have to take the beater vehicle because the nice one, is not able to be used and pick up your date in something that sounds like a rocket that is about to crash. Um, what is going on here? Uh, some people have this idea that uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey uh, is somewhat because there's no horses available. Uh, a nice stallion, as it were, to ride in on in uh, a sign of great triumph and victory. And anyone who's been paying attention to the Gospel of John would understand that that really is something that is not entirely out of the realm of what will happen one day. In fact, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, also wrote chapter 19 about one who is faithful and true on a white horse who judges and makes war against his enemies. So there will actually be a day when the horse 
will be used. But at this point in Christ's ministry, it is a lowly donkey, a slow, meandering donkey. And what is the symbolism of this? Well, uh, they understand, you see, based upon the fact that Lazarus has been made uh, alive again, that uh, this may be the Messiah. And it's causing a bit of frenzy. And at this point in Jerusalem, according to Josephus, there were over two million people in Jerusalem for this festivity. So you have a, a, a sort of a frenzy happening of spiritual proportions. And here Jesus is uh, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And there are palm uh, branches, which is a sign of uh, nationalistic hope in the Messiah. I don't think they have really any true idea what is going on. But this all really happens in large part because of Lazarus. Now, if you go back a few verses before verse 12 uh, to verse 9, you'll see that Lazarus, uh, his life is under threat. Now, this is quite something. Imagine having died and now your life is under threat. Lazarus is probably going to be forgiven for thinking, you know, um, I'm not sure how this is my fault. Uh, you want to kill me? I was minding my own business in the grave uh, for four days and I was called out. I didn't move the stone away. I didn't raise myself from the dead. I've been raised from the dead and you want to kill me. But you see, he is the evidence that Jesus Christ, who has done many signs, is actually from God. And so as Jesus comes in on a donkey, what is the symbolism of this donkey? Well, it's actually uh, a number of theological uh, statements can be made. The first is that Jesus is coming in peace. Riding on a donkey is one of peace. Riding on a horse in Revelation is one of war. Horses and chariots, they don't fare well in the Old Testament in terms of God's people. Some trust in chariots. We trust in the Lord our God. Jesus is coming in on a donkey. It's, a, it's a, a peaceful king. And he is coming in, and if you look at the quote from Zechariah, and you go to chapter uh, 9 and read verse 10, you'll find that there's also the idea that salvation is going to extend to the ends of the earth. And lo and behold, what do we find here in John chapter 12, but that Greeks come onto the scene. So, Zechariah 9 is being fulfilled, but there's also the the imagery of the blood of the covenant and the Passover lamb. So Jesus is coming in peace. He's coming in peace with a salvation that is going to extend to the ends of the earth. So far, so good in the minds of Jewish people. However, he comes as one who will be the Passover lamb. And that is what people will fail to believe their Messiah should be capable of doing. Now, <clears throat> The Gentiles then, in verses 12 to 36, trigger what is Christ's announcement of the hour. So, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And they go to Philip. Philip is a Greek name, so they may find that they have a sort of commonality with Philip, can maybe speak to him in Greek, and therefore able to get an interview with Jesus. Notice the words they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, these words in the original context clearly are looking for an interview with someone they have heard remarkable stories about, namely Lazarus. But they are words that if you were 
uh, somewhat skilled with um, a tool, I would have no problem if next Sunday I were to see on my pulpit, uh, Sir, we would see Jesus. Not only because I like to be called Sir, but uh, I think that really the pulpit exists for that very purpose. Sir, we would see Jesus. That's it. And that's what they ask for. And what has Jesus said in his ministry? If you ask, you will receive. Now, the Jesus they are able to see is the Jesus that speaks to them about what? The things that actually matter. And what are the things that actually matter? Well, notice in verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come. Up until now in John, the hour has always been a future thing. My hour has not yet come. Now the hour has come. Jesus knows that he is going to die. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And clearly, this glorification is his glorification on the cross. And that's the thing about John. It's the thing about Isaiah. It's the thing about the Scriptures is that Shame and humiliation and suffering is intricately tied to glory and exaltation. And Jesus says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. That is, now is the time for the Son of Man to be crucified. He could have said either word. Because it means one and the same thing in a certain sense. We know this is true because look at the next words out of his mouth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. How do we know he's speaking about his death when he's glorified? Because of what he says immediately thereafter. His death will bear much fruit. Now, in light of this, he then has a stirring call then to those who would believe. And if you look at John chapter 12, in fact, all of the Gospel of John, it's really a battle between not only Christ and the Pharisees, but between those who do believe and those who don't believe, or those who do believe but don't really believe because they believe on their own terms, not on Christ's terms. Christ speaks as one who is a Jew, The Semitic languages are a little bit different than English, and Hebrew uh, is obviously different than English. And one of the glorious things about Hebrew that some of us will appreciate is how black and white it is, how matter-of-fact. It's one of uh, absolutes. So notice what he says, whoever loves his life loses it. This isn't sort of a gray area. You love your life, you will lose it. And whoever hates his life, not whoever is mildly unhappy with how things are going. Speak to any teenager and ask, uh, how is your life going? Anything you'd like to change? And they might say, yes, I'm, I'm a little bit unhappy with a few things. Speak to a parent. How are things going? I'm a little bit unhappy with a few things. Things could be better. How are you doing today? And what do we say? How many say, you know, I am just doing so wonderful. Life could not be better. Usually you say something that's really uninteresting. Okay. I've started saying, I'm doing better than you. (laughs) 
And I'll tell you why, because that does foster some conversation. Oh, and, and how do you know that? Well, not simply by looking, but... <laughs> and you just start talking to someone. It's quite nice. Try it. How are you doing? Better than you. Just see what happens. Report back to me, please. <laughs> How are you doing in life? I hate my life. Many teenagers say that too, don't they? Sadly. But they don't hate their life the way they should hate their life. Jesus is saying, if you want to actually save your life and enjoy life, you need to hate your life. Because as long as you are living for yourself and for your glory and with your own self-interest according to your own will, you basically do hate your life in the way that you shouldn't. But when you actually live for Christ, and notice he gives us the interpretation. So just as verse 24 interprets verse 23, so verse 26 in verse interprets verse 25. If anyone serves me, that's what it is to hate your life. It's to put Christ before yourself. He must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What is Jesus saying? He's saying hating your self-centered life is what makes a true disciple. The cross saves us. That's why verses 23 and 24 come before verse 25 and 26. But after the cross saves us, it then becomes us. That's crucial for you to understand. The cross saves you, then it becomes you. If anyone would be my disciple, he must what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. He must hate his life on his terms and live his life on my terms. So you put to death sin. You live for God. In fact, there's a verse you probably wouldn't ordinarily hear quoted in context with this, but it did strike me when Paul's speaking to the widows in 1 Timothy 5, verses 5 to 6. He says, Those who are truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But... She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. In other words, you can be dead even though you are alive. That's self-centered living. Now, after Jesus has spoken about these realities, He then offers up a prayer. And this prayer is a very, shall I say, demanding prayer of you as a listener now and if you need to fake going to the bathroom now's the time to do it but if you really need to go i'm not going to judge you okay but please don't fake going because this is really important okay kids i know i was there once i used to go and drift out talk to my buddy come back just hold with me for five minutes unless you really need to go deal Jesus offers up a prayer, and it's absolutely astounding in what he says. He says, now my soul is troubled. Why is his soul troubled? Because he's just spoken about his hour coming. He's just spoken about a grain of wheat falling to the earth and dying. And his soul is troubled. And what shall I say? And then he offers a prayer. And there's a little bit of a problem. The problem is in the following verse. Father, 
Save me from this hour. Here's the issue. Should there be a question mark there? Should there be a question mark? This is very deep theology, by the way. Because if you remove the question mark, then he's actually making a petition. Father, save me from this hour. If you keep the question mark there, it's a sort of hypothetical. Now, if you take away, now is my soul troubled, you might have some justification for the question mark. But because my soul is troubled, you need to erase that question mark, I think. Because this is actually a preview of Gethsemane. Three times he will say in Gethsemane, let this cup pass. Let this cup pass. Let this cup pass. They are three requests. And here he is saying, Father, save me from this hour. And one theologian, Hugh Martin, in the shadow of Calvary, wrote in a book, it's a fabulous book, he wrote basically to the effect that if Jesus Christ had not actually petitioned the Father to save Him from the hour, we might question whether He was in fact sinless. Now why is that? Because if He had not begged and pleaded with the Father to remove this hour, to remove the torment and the horror, and the shame, and the indignity of the cross, we might question whether he really understood the holiness and justice of God. We might question whether he really was face to face with God, and could truly understand, unlike any of us, what the horrors of Golgotha would really be like. And how much God hates sin, who is of purer eyes than to look upon iniquity. And we think He would just stroll into Calvary and say, well, you know, have to do God's will. Hugh Martin says that to have such impressive views as Jesus had of His Father's wrath and not be filled with earnest longing to escape from it would have shown to us that He did not possess a true human nature with all the sinless sensibilities which are of the essence of humanity. In other words, if He really is the sinless One who hates sin with a holy hatred and knows what God's judgment will be like towards sin, how could He possibly not say these words? That's the key. But also remember that while these are not a mere hypothetical statement, they are always wrapped up in the words, your will be done. And that's essentially what he says when he says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. On the one hand, the thought of the cross fills him with terror and dread. On the other hand, his love for his Father fills him with obedience for your sake and mine. For this purpose I have come to this hour. When he speaks in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he speaks of his death on the cross as a baptism that he has to undergo, which is the flood of God's waters, of His wrath being poured out upon him. And he talks about how greatly distressed his soul is over that. He sweats like drops of blood in Gethsemane because... He cannot think about what it's going to be like to endure 
the awful wrath of Almighty God. But he does it because God's glory is more important than his life. Soli Deo Gloria is not a nice little Latin phrase that you just put on your wall at home and say, oh, to the glory of God alone. It's a phrase in this context that is wrapped up with the greatest horror imaginable. And his father answers. He answers that I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again which is basically assuring his son that the glory that Jesus seeks will be secured without fail. Now, the crowd hears this. They don't understand what's going on. But Jesus makes a point in verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, and I think there's a double entendre going on here where Jesus is lifted up on the cross. Clearly, that's the first point to make. But there's another sense in which he is raised. He's ascended on high. When he's lifted up, there's the humiliation of being lifted up on the cross. There's the exaltation of being lifted up into the heavenly places. And it is this lifting up whereby He draws all men to Himself. Now, He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. Now, they say, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, which is true, and He does remain forever, but He remains forever through the cross, not apart from the cross. Now, how do they respond to this? Jesus has made clear now that He is a suffering Messiah. He comes in on a donkey bringing peace. He is not going to wage war at this point against His enemies like He will at the final judgment. How do people respond? Well, notice they respond in a most shocking way. The quote comes from Isaiah. There's a few quotes that come from Isaiah, but look at verse 40. They don't believe. Verse 37, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe. Why don't they believe? Because in verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Most of us who know anything about Isaiah chapter 6 like the sort of holy, holy, holy part. And they go, wow, it must have been something for Isaiah. He's in the temple. It's filled with smoke. And he says, woe is me, I'm undone. And that Hebrew word, nidmeti, undone, is the sort of silence that overtakes one at a funeral. And he's, he's left without anything to say. And then he's able to muster up, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, for I have seen the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty whose train of His robe fills the temple. And we say, ah, Isaiah 6. That's a great chapter, isn't it? And what comes after that? Isaiah gets ordained to the ministry. And he's told that he's going to go and preach, and his preach is going to have not the effect of salvation coming to the ends of the earth. His preaching is going to have the effect of hardening and deadening God's people. That they're actually going to disbelieve instead of believe. That they're going to be so caught up in idolatry that they're going to become calloused and dull and stupid and blind. And so Jesus is ordained to the ministry and there's a certain sense in which his ministry up until the cross is not unlike Isaiah's, where people just don't believe. 
Now, there's something else about Isaiah that you need to understand, Isaiah chapter 6. Not just that there's a solemn call and commission to go and preach a message of judgment, but that, let's just say, two people knock on your door tomorrow, dressed in suits or uh, 60s dress, uh, JWs, Mormons, and whoever uh, else might knock on your door. Real estate agents, there we go. Needed a third category. Once you're nice to one, they don't leave you alone, by the way. So my advice is don't be nice to a realtor. I'm getting mail from this guy. It's getting, it's getting a little creepy. <laughs> and they come to your door and you say, Oh, you spring up from your seat. Bible in hand and you lick your lips in anticipation because you heard a really good sermon on Sunday morning, hopefully Sunday evening as well. And lo and behold, they go, oh, this is interesting. Someone who seems very eager to speak with us today. And you say, "Uh, do you mind if we go to Isaiah chapter 6? And they say, oh, we'd love to go to Isaiah chapter 6. And you say, now who is Isaiah seeing in Isaiah chapter 6? Is that Jehovah? And they say, yes, that's Jehovah. It says it. You go, are you sure? And they say, yes, very sure. That's Jehovah. And you say, okay, I'm just making sure. We're on the same page. And then you go to John chapter 12, verse 41, and you go, well, here is Isaiah 6 being quoted. And all of a sudden we read, Isaiah said these things, which are quotes from chapter 6, because he saw whose glory? Christ's glory and spoke of him. Who did Isaiah see in chapter 6? He saw Christ. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. The train of His robe filled the temple and Isaiah was undone by the sight of Jesus Christ. Before the Apostle Paul falls down on the road to Damascus, before the Apostle John falls down as though dead on the island of Patmos, Isaiah had experienced a death of sorts because he'd seen the glory of the Son of God. And people did not believe. They would not believe. They could not believe. Now what can we say by way of application? I just have one point of application because I thought my sermon would go on too long. Yet here we are. Feels like five minutes. Uh, maybe six. What can we say? I hope you'll remember this, by the way. It may come in handy in five or ten years. Especially if you're a young kid. Second row, you guys. All right, lads. You probably will go through some trouble in your life. I think we can safely say troubles. And some troubles will be of such a piercing nature that you will pray to God to have those troubles removed from you. And it will not be a sort of uh, mild prayer request, but it will basically be as though you are falling down and begging Him. And you have to understand that that is entirely appropriate to do. That we shouldn't be looking for suffering, looking for trouble, we should be seeking to have these troubles removed. Otherwise, why would we pray? 
So far, so good. And sometimes God does actually deliver us from that particular trouble. But there are times, is it not true, that God doesn't deliver us from that trouble? Certainly not in the time frame that we would like Him to deliver us from that trouble. In other words, God actually says no to our request. God may even say no, and this I think can be more painful than what I've just spoken of. You can see someone you dearly love in a trouble and you are begging for them to have that trouble removed and God says no to that request. And if that's a child or a dear friend or a spouse or a family member, that can be more painful than if you were in the trouble yourself. Here's something for you to understand. Jesus Christ was in precisely that predicament here. He is begging for the trouble, for the trauma, for the horror, for the agony to be removed from Him. And God says no. And Jesus knows that God says no because He says, for this reason I have come. But God's no is not only better for you and me. In fact, that's not the first reason. God's no is better for Jesus. It is better that God would say no. It is better that Christ would be lifted up into glory through the cross, not apart from the cross. It is better for Christ that He goes through His trouble. And it's better for us that we understand that our Savior who is in heaven now understands that in our own lives by way of personal experience. And that is what distinguishes us from Muslims and from Buddhists. It's what distinguishes us from everyone is that we can't look at God and say, you don't have any idea what it's like to go through this. Next week or the week after, I have great news. Nikki, one of the Afghan refugees, made a profession of faith in Christ and wants to be baptized. And it's a glorious thing. I hugged her and accidentally punched her in the face as I hugged her. I was so happy. I lost control of my limbs. First congregant I've ever punched was someone who has seen the wickedness of Islam and embraced the glory of Christ. And I punched this dear lady. And I tell you, I'd love to punch a lot more people if that was the result. That they want to be baptized because they are coming to a Savior who is gentle, who is loving, who will welcome her into His arms, and who understands what true pain and sorrow is like, unlike Allah, unlike Buddha, unlike our friends or our enemies, Jesus Christ alone knows what it is to go through trouble for your sake, to minister to you even when you get a no. Because God's no's sometimes are better than His yeses. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for our Savior who understood His glory to be suffering who understood that it was better not only for our sake, but for His sake, that He would do the will of His Father and not His own will. And so we pray that we may have the mind of Christ to accept 
your no's, also to rejoice in your yeses, and to know that when it's all said and done, it is a resounding yes from the heavenly places to us who are in Christ. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.